I'm just delighted it wasn't me reading all those complex names. But uh, I knew that Thomas was a safe pair of hands for such technicals, so thank you. We're continuing our series in uh, the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Uh, so before we look further at this passage of Scripture, uh, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, your word tells us that you speak to us through your word and that your Holy Spirit indeed speaks to us through it, taking the words of the text uh, such that we can hear you speaking to our hearts and minds in a living and active way. And we pray that you do that this morning. And may the truths of this passage and the wider teaching of Scripture, which reflects on this passage, uh, come home to us uh, in a way which is profound, in a way which encourages us on our journey uh, to ultimately the new creation, living under the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we're tracking through uh, this book of Genesis, and we've been following, of course, uh, the life drama of the man uh, Abram, uh, the man of faith. Uh, We've seen, of course, in previous weeks, previous chapters, uh, his faith has not all been plain sailing. Because of the famine in the land, he leaves the promised land, which God has promised to him, and he goes down to Egypt, and there his faith falters. Uh, He lies. He says his wife is uh, actually a sister. He doesn't, he he lies to people, and he gets into all sorts of messes there. Uh, But then he returns to the promised land. He returns to Bethel. He renews his vows to God and his walk of faith with God. And we saw last week, of course, that that then gave him a real liberty as he trusted in God's promises to him it gave him a real liberty uh, to take risks and to make costly decisions. Uh, Last week we saw, of course, one particular costly decision and and difficult situation was managing his relationship with his nephew Lot. Uh, They had a nice problem that they had all become too wealthy. They had too much stuff and they were getting on each other's nerves and they decided they would need to separate uh, for the sake of their relationship. And yet what does Abraham do? He gives Lot the first choice. You can choose which part of the land you want to go to. And of course, Lot chooses the best of the land. Uh, He goes to the well-watered and fertile plains of the Jordan Valley, and he leaves Abram. So, uh, now we see this week that uh, Lot's choice leads ultimately to his undoing. Uh, He is caught up, isn't he, in this... uh, international conflict uh, in events beyond his control. Uh, What's actually happening is uh, there is an alliance of a coalition of four kings in the east. Uh, They are from the land of uh, Iran and Iraq and modern-day Turkey. And these four kings have uh, the... They've ruled over the area in which Lot is living. Uh, The five local kings to Lot, the kings of the Dead Sea are subservient to these kings out in the east uh, and paying homage to them and no doubt taxes. But there comes a point where they rebel. And so this coalition from the east comes in and conquers uh, and puts down the rebellion. But of course, uh, Lot and his family and all his goods are caught up in this event. Uh, and They too, uh, when these four kings from the east conquer the land, uh, Lot and his family are carried off as part of the booty. Uh, Abram, of course, then, as a man of faith, takes more risky and costly decisions. Uh, with what must have been an inferior force of 318 men, he pursues uh, 
the coalition. Uh, he has the advantage of surprise. Uh, he attacks at night. But ultimately, God is the one who grants him success. The man of faith, stepping out again in faith to rescue, of course, his nephew and all his families. And it's at this point that this mysterious figure enters the stage of Old Testament history, a guy called Melchizedek. Uh, Look at chapter 14, verses 18 to 20. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. There he is, this strange figure, Melchizedek. Uh, This is the only point in the Old Testament historical accounts that he occurs. Uh, Three verses, and then he is heard of no more. But as we're going to see, as the salvation history storyline of the Bible unfolds, Melchizedek proves to be of great significance. His name is Melchizedek, which in itself is a mouthful, uh, and he's described as both a priest and a king. He is the king of Salem, which is another word for Jerusalem. He's the king of Salem, but he's also priest of God Most High, the creator of heaven and earth, the God also of Abraham. And Melchizedek greets Abram as he returns uh, victorious. And he gives him, he blesses him, and he gives him bread and wine. Fast forward a thousand years, and there we have King David. And under God's inspiration, King David himself looks forward. Uh, he, in fact, prophesies about God's Messiah. And it's recorded for us in Psalm 110. And he picks up on this character, Melchizedek. Psalm 110, verse 4. King David says this about the Messiah who will come. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. There is a reference to the Messiah. Uh, Fast forward another thousand years, and we find the author of the New Testament letter to the Hebrews connecting the dots between David's prophecy and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Speaking of Jesus, he says in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9, He became, this is Jesus, the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And was designated by God to be priest, high priest in the order of, there he is, Melchizedek. Why is Melchizedek important? Why is he important? Uh, what we're going to do is two things. Firstly, we're going to look at the case for Jesus being our priest king. And then we're going to consider, secondly, the implications of Jesus being our priest king. So the case for Jesus being our priest king, and then the implications. And particularly when we get into the implications, we're going to drill down on the priest bit. But we're going to see that Melchizedek is key for understanding and answering both those questions. So firstly, the case for Jesus being our priest king. Now, the claim of the New Testament, and in particular the author of the letters of the Hebrews, was that Christ was the fulfillment 
of all the Old Testament institutions and offices. Uh, they were shadows of the reality that was to come in Christ. So, for example, uh, in the Old Testament, we have the institution of the, the kingship and the office of king. And, of course, Jesus was the promised king in the line of David. And the Old Testament office of king was perfectly fulfilled in King Jesus. Uh, another example, uh, Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Uh, we know, of course, Jesus was the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, who atones for our sins. A third way which the Old Testament points to Jesus, Jesus was the fulfillment of the priesthood. Uh, he was the final and ultimate high priest, and he now intercedes on our behalf. Now then, there was a significant technical problem in Jesus' claim to this priestly office. And the problem was this. He was from the wrong tribe. You see, to be a priest, you had to be from the tribe of Levi. And no, he wasn't the founder of the jeans company. And that was God's command. Very clearly in the Old Testament. Forget equal opportunities. If you wanted to be a priest, you had to be a member of the tribe of Levi. Anyone from the other 11 tribes of Israel need not apply. It was very clear. But what tribe was Jesus from? Not Levi. Uh, in a few weeks' time at carol services throughout the land and the world, and Matthew chapter 2 will be read, no doubt. And it's the situation where King Herod inquires of the religious leaders where Christ the King is to be born. What do they do? They go back to their Old Testament scriptures and they quote them and they reply in Matthew 2, verse 5. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. There it is. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, which was the tribe of the royal line. A thousand years earlier, God, of course, had chosen David to be his king. And God had promised David that his family line would rule forever. Do you see what that does? In so doing, God ties the kingship to the tribe of Judah. And Jesus was from that kingly tribe. But he wasn't from the priestly tribe. So the question is this. How can Jesus, therefore, be our priest? Surely uh, he's disqualified. Surely he's illegitimate. Uh, surely, technically, it's not possible. Uh, what God has said in the Old Testament is very clear. And now you can imagine, uh, first century rabbis would have had a field day with this. Uh, for them, this was knockdown proof that Jesus was an imposter. Uh, in 2013, uh, the documentary film, The Imposter, was released. It's about the 1997 case of a French conman, a Bourdin, who impersonated a Texan boy who disappeared at the age of 13. Now, this guy, Bourdin, not only fooled the authorities, for five months, he even convinced the boy's family that he was their missing 
teenage son. Uh, The family seemed unconcerned by the fact that he now had blue eyes rather than brown, and that his ears had changed shape and then he now had a French accent. Amusing. Uh, It actually took a private investigator to unearth the truth that he was, in fact, an imposter. Now, the fact that Jesus is from Judah, not Levi, should be ringing alarm bells. Surely he's an imposter. Surely this is a deal breaker. Surely it's like him having blue eyes instead of brown. So what's the answer? Well, the answer lies in this shadowy figure of Melchizedek. Because here was a priest of the Most High God who was not from the tribe of Levi. You see, there was another priestly line, another priestly line apart from the Aaronic order. And it was the order of Melchizedek. And the claim is, actually, Jesus is from this line of priests. But the question is this, uh, how do you qualify to be in the order of Melchizedek? And the answer is something which you or I cannot achieve. You have to live forever. Uh, speaking of Melchizedek, Hebrews chapter 7 verse 3 says this, Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. In the Genesis account, there's no mention of Melchizedek's birth or death. I don't think it's saying that he's eternal, but it's just not in the biblical record. He just appears as a living man and he disappears. A brief aside. Some have suggested that maybe this was a pre-incarnation appearance of Jesus himself, uh, not actually a historical person. And certainly when you first read that, Hebrews 7 verse 3, it certainly initially makes you go there. But actually, the case is derailed when you look more closely at the Greek word in that verse rendered like. Uh, He was like the Son of God. He remains a priest forever. Because that word doesn't actually allow it. It's a verb in the Greek that always assumes two distinct and separate identities. So actually, uh, the data would probably point to Melchizedek being a Canaanite who has come to the worship of the true God. So Abram was a descendant of the blessed Shem. Melchizedek was a descendant of the cursed Ham, who indeed uh, the Canaanites came from. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it points to God's work being wider than just Abraham's family line during the Old Testament era. You see, this guy Melchizedek, he falls into the same league as other non-Jews in the Old Testament times who recognize God's hand at work in Abraham's family line. Uh, Other examples, of course, Rahab, uh, Ruth, Naaman. And of course, this continues in the New Testament era with the Magi, the Centurion, the Syrophoenician woman, and the Gentiles who come to faith in Christ in the era of the Acts of the Apostles. So God's work is wider than just the family line of Abraham and Israel. So coming back to our friend Melchizedek, uh, he's not the Christ, but he foreshadows Christ the priest king who would come. Now, what were the criteria for the promised priest king? Uh, How do we know him? 
as I've already alluded to. The answer is, he would live forever. And Hebrews 7 verse 25 sums this up beautifully. Hebrews 7 verse 15. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. One who has become a priest not in the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. Jesus as priest is no con man. He's a proper priest. He's the promised priest in the line of Melchizedek. And his qualifications for that office are clear. He's the one who through his resurrection has an indestructible life. He is now ascended and he lives and he rules in heaven. And also as priest, he intercedes for people. So Jesus is the priest king in the order of Melchizedek. And that is the case for him. That's the first point we're going to look at. Secondly, let's move on now to think about the implications of Jesus being our priest king. Because Jesus is both. He is priest and king. And he performs both offices. Now, to an Old Testament Israelite, it would have probably seemed impossible to combine the two offices into the one person. Think about it. What was the king's role? The king represented God to the people. In other words, the king told the people the law, God's law, and the king enforced the law. Move on to the priest. What was the priest's role? The priest represented the people to God. The priest was the caregiver. The priest was the supporter. The priest was the one who was sympathetic to your dilemma and your cause. The priest is the one who accepted you, who sympathized, who dealt with you gently. Hebrews 5, verses 1 and 2. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters relating to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. So you see, the kings were a bit like the, the stern father figures. They were the ones who were telling you to toe the line. But on the other hand, the priests were like the mother figures, who just loved you no matter what. But how could the two ever be combined? And it's only now, of course, that we can see that they were, could be combined in Jesus, the one who is both fully God and fully man. He is the perfect priest-king to which Melchizedek points. And it means that, firstly, as king, Jesus is absolutely committed to holiness and truth. He won't compromise and he won't fudge the issue of our sin. But it means as priest, he's also committed to lovers and to acceptors. And on the cross, he wonderfully resolves that tension. It's on the cross that he treads the path which makes us holy on the one hand and accepted and loved as children on the other. Of course, as high priest, he offers the sin sacrifice on behalf of the people, but also he is 
a sin sacrifice. And it doesn't stop there because his work as high priest is ongoing. Hebrews 7, verse 24. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Uh, Now, in application, I'd like to drill down particularly on Christ's role as our priest, as our high priest. Uh, The brilliant 17th century Puritan theologian John Owen said the following, There is no office of Christ that Satan labors so hard to obscure and to overthrow as Christ's priestly role. Satan doesn't want people to see or appreciate the role that Jesus performs as priest. Why? Because it is a critical and a crucial role. And it's a role which ultimately defeats Satan and undoes his dark work in the world. You see, for those of us who have put our trust in Christ, he is there for us 24-7. And as high priest... You could say he is like the mother figure. He understands, he sympathizes, and he is gentle. And there is no sin and there is no guilt that we can bring to him that he cannot deal with. At verse 25 again of Hebrews says, he lives to intercede for us always. That's worth reflecting briefly on that. What is intercession? Because that is a key word here. What does it mean? Uh, Literally, it means to go between. To intercede is to intervene with someone on the behalf of somebody else, to plead someone's case with someone. So think about the legal situation, a courtroom. It is the role of an advocate or a barrister who pleads for another and speaks on their behalf. You know what? That is what Jesus does for us before God. He is our priest. He is our advocate. You could say he's our legal representation. He speaks on our behalf. And when we sin and we bring it to Jesus, he pleads our case in the heavenly courtroom. Look at the words of 1 John chapter 2 verse 1, which assures us that anybody When anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Talk about having a top barrister on your case. Jesus is the top. He's the QC par excellence. And you see what flows from that. It should give us complete confidence to keep drawing near to God through him. Because he's always there. And he's always committed to our case. And his record is very good. He's never lost a case, and he never will. How can I, such a weak and sinful person, possibly come near to such a holy, perfect, awesome God? I cannot do that on my own. But through Christ, I can with confidence. Because He intercedes for me. And he applies his cleansing blood on the cross for me. And if you come to him in trust, 
He does that for you. But it's up to us to draw near. And if we're trusting in Christ, it's up to us to keep our barrister, if you like, up to speed with our case, to keep confessing our sins to Him. We don't do that because if we don't, we're going to lose heaven. We do that as we saw in the kids' talk because first we know it grieves Him, and we do that also because it is the process of change, the way we change as Christian people. Uh, The insightful 19th century Anglican bishop J.C. Ryle wrote this, If Christ really is the priest of our souls, let us use him regularly and keep nothing back from him. It is a sorrowful fact that many believers enjoy the gospel far less than they ought to for lack of boldness in using the priestly office of Jesus Christ. They go mourning and weeping along the way to heaven, perplexing themselves by pouring over their sins and carrying ten times as much weight and guilt on their backs as Christ ever meant them to bear. Let's go morning, noon, and night and get relief from him every day. Insightful and very, very germane. Uh, Closer to our time, the late John Stott wrote something along similar lines, and again I quote, Many of us are not prospering in our Christian lives. We are making little or no progress. We have got stuck and do not appear to be enjoying the mercy of God. Is the reason partly or wholly that we have neglected the secret confession of our sins to God? You see, there is no prospering in the Christian life without this. Christ is our high priest. He's available 24-7. How much use are we making of him? Are we confessing our sins to him regularly, morning, noon, and night? Uh, Briefly, there's, there's a danger, isn't there, that through this picture of Christ as our priest and advocate, we actually misunderstand the nature of God. Uh, It doesn't mean that God is a reluctant, scowling judge who's constantly having to be persuaded by a top barrister. Actually, this barrister was appointed for us by God. It was his idea. He made it happen. And the two of them now are working together hand in hand. Isn't it a striking thought that God the Father and Jesus talk about me and about you? Your name is talked about in the heavenly throne room. So as we close, for those of us who trust in Christ, the question is this. To what extent are we using Jesus as our high priest? Now, as believers, how are we dealing with ongoing sin and guilt in our lives? How are our confession lives? Are we engaging in this wonderfully healthy but so important process of confessing our sins, saying sorry to God, keeping our accounts with Him short, but also saying, God, I don't want to continue to be like this. I'm sorry, but please help me to change. Because that is how we grow as God's people. That is an important recurring cycle in the Christian life. Confession and asking for help to change.
to turn our back on those sins which we know make him grief him and which also weigh us down with guilt. We confess, we say sorry, we ask him to help us change and we're then, of course, also relieved of that guilt burden which otherwise we carry. It is an important and refreshing part of our Christian walk. And finally, if you're somebody who has not yet put your trust in Jesus as your priest, then do you see you desperately, desperately, desperately need legal representation? Because please, you dare not stand before a holy God representing your own case. As a sinful person, you cannot. It is only Jesus who can cleanse you and bring you perfect before the holy God. It is only Jesus who can intercede on your behalf. Nobody else can deal with your sin problem before a holy God. Come to him. He is this wonderful priest-king figure. And he can give you peace in your heart and an assurance of an eternity in God's presence, ultimately in the new creation. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for Melchizedek, this obscure figure who points to the greater reality and this wonderful and deep and rich reality of the Lord Jesus Christ, our priest king. Thank you for his wonderful for perfect fulfillment of those roles as king and as priest, and particular, this wonderful role he has of cleansing us uh, as the high priest who makes the sacrifice and also the sacrifice himself. Thank you that he continues to intercede for us and that we can be refreshed in our Christian lives through this ongoing recurring cycle of confessing our sins and being relieved of the guilt and having the power of your spirit and your word at work to then change us and transform us. Please, we pray, continue that great work in our hearts and lives. Keep us humble, keep us confessing, uh, keep us reflecting on our lives as they are and looking to the future for you to change them. We ask this all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.